Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPEGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee, and I am joined by my co-host and colleague at Nationwide Children's Hospital, Peter Liu. Hello. Welcome to the show. So I want to talk more about the NASPEGAN Planning Committee. How was that? So yeah, I had the opportunity to go to the NASPEGAN uh, annual meeting planning meeting last weekend. This will come out in a couple of weeks, so in mid-January in Orlando, Florida. And uh, I did not know what to expect. How was it? It was crazy. Yeah, was it, <laughs> it good was to like, be in person? Oh, it was awesome. It was yeah. awesome to see people in person, for sure. Like that, yes. How much hugging did you do? You know, <laughs> you know, like... I mean, we had, there's like strict rules. We had to get tested oh, before we went. Mm-hmm. We had to wear a mask the whole time. You can't leave the hotel premises. So mm. I feel like when people saw each other again, I'm not a hugger at baseline. So <laughs> any excuse I have to not give a hug, I'm taking it. Oh, so if they were trying to come towards you, you were like, leave me alone. I'm COVID. like, COVID, you know, <laughs> I, like, why do we need okay. to do this? So yeah, I was like okay, that. Okay. And, uh, but it was intense. I was like, okay, to be completely serious, I was super impressed by how seriously this sounds like an advertisement for the for NASPGAN, but it's not. Like people really take it seriously that the speakers, moderators have to be really uh, well distributed by like gender, by race, ethnicity, region, institution. Wow! Like really, that's the majority of the time. Like trying to figure out how we can accurately, like better represent NASPGAN as a whole, so not everyone is from Ohio. <laughs> Um, but seriously, I was very impressed. Like that's really like, you know, you go through it, the whole program, like session by session. And then we went through it again and then again, like trying to like make it the best program it can be. Yeah. I mean, they're like, it's literally like, there's like a little board there. We're like tallying, you know, yeah. Every institution, like every, you know, are they underrepresented minority or not? And male, female, I think it was actually, yeah, it's so that was like exhausting, but I thought it was really cool. It's uh, it shows like what the leadership prioritizes to like lock themselves in a room for two days to like, you know, tally and count all these little things. So, oh, so you're not like hanging at the pool talking about this stuff. I mean, it's we like made in the, a room. <laughs> I, I was warned. So I had told Leslie that uh, like, don't come. I can't interact with you the entire time. But she's like, you're not leaving us at home. So she brought Emma yeah. and, uh, yeah, she is a she is a huge mistake. She was stuck oh, no. with Emma the entire time. I was like, you can't leave the hotel. So they're like just stuck at the hotel. And it was cold relatively and it was raining. Uh, and so it was basically her with Emma in a hotel room for two days. And I yeah, was that like, sounds bad. I'll be back at six o'clock. There was a break in the schedule. And then I was back at 1030 p.m. The oh, first man. day. And well, I feel like it just is more opportunity to get super excited about NASPGAN annual meeting oh, yeah. coming up in November. Honestly, like, you know some of this, but I feel like there's some really exciting things that are going to happen. Like our Bow Sounds uh, party? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. That's one. That's one. <laughs> Did you talk about that at the planning meeting? Uh, no, I Dang, totally forgot. Come on, Peter. I know. I mean. Priorities. <sighs> I know. But yes, we have to do something. I mean, the hotel is huge. Like the grounds are huge. We could easily take over a poolside bar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. And just be like, NAS began. Take the money that you're supposed to pay us and just put it towards the bar tab. Yeah. And then open bar as long as it lasts. <laughs> Five minutes. I know. The drinks are really expensive <laughs> there. So it's going to be really quick. <laughs> Anyways. Um, okay. So do we have any new um, reviews? Re- reviews? I forgot. Okay. Awesome and thank you by Merletta Liz. Awesome and thank you by Merletta Liz. As a GI administrative assistant and ostomate, ostomate advocate, I thoroughly appreciate and enjoy the podcast. It's informative and entertaining regardless of the acronym at the end of your name. Wait a second. I'm definitely biased, but my favorite to date is racism in medicine. What a great episode. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think for the listeners, like we're always like, I mean, we're not really sure how every episode will be received. And I think for that one, especially we're like, I don't know. Are people going to like, yeah, 
like how are they gonna this think? one yeah i mean obviously we felt like it was important enough to dedicate an episode to and we were really passionate about making sure that that happened yeah mm-hmm. but uh, that's awesome on to today's show today we are going to be talking to none other than our boss's boss yeah also our boss yeah technically yeah. dr john barnard so dr barnard i mean does he need an introduction? No. Okay, so. moving on. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, everyone in Naspigan knows, you know, he's a former Naspigan president. He has uh, been involved in Naspigan for many, many years now in many different roles. He uh, was the winner of the Schwachman Award, I think it was just two, three years ago in uh, 2018. And uh, he's also here. He's held many leadership roles within Nation Children's Hospital. Currently, he is the chair of our pediatrics department and also the head of our research institute. You know, so I feel like he has really uh, kind of been a, a, a great example of how um, you can be a leader in medicine. He's obviously very much invested in uh, pediatric GI and also pediatric research as a whole. So we wanted to get his input on the future of research and with all the concerns about funding and like, do these kids coming up right now still want to do research? We want to ask him, like, what's the future like for people who want to do research, specifically in pediatric GI? Or people who don't want to focus on research but still want to have some research to do, right? Yeah. Like, how do you balance research with all the other things that you want to do and clinical stuff and life and stuff like that? Yeah. So he answers all those questions and more. Yeah. So Dr. Barnard's about to retire in a few months. And oh, we should mention I that. love, love, love getting advice from people who are about to retire because sometimes they'll just say anything. Yeah. Like things you may not expect. That's true. We try <laughs> to ask them some, some provocative questions. I mean, all like research related provocative questions. Yeah. But that's sure. true. I guess we can't give it away. Yeah. The big <laughs> bombshell he dropped. Wait, he dropped listen. a bombshell? I forgot. <laughs> of course he did. Everything he says is a bombshell. All right, on to the show. On to the show. So, Dr. Barnard, thank you so much for joining us on this show. We've been wanting to have you on for a long time now, so it's awesome to finally have you uh, on as a guest. Well, I am uh, very pleased to be here. It's uh, it's an honor, and may I just say. Uh, how appreciative I am of uh, you guys doing the Bow Sounds podcast. It's just really, I think, added so much to our professional community, which was already tight-knit, cohesive uh, nationally, but this is just up the ante even more. Uh, Kudos to you for investing the time and energy and creativity in doing it. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun. Okay, so we are going to start with uh, perhaps the most challenging question. So for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? So in the uh, spirit of, of the great Southern writer, uh, Faulkner, mm-hmm. I'll do a run-on sentence. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I am a exceptionally common, ordinary person who has loved biology and subsequently medicine and children for all of my career, deeply passionate on the topic. And I have succeeded uh, to the extent one judges that I've succeeded by surrounding myself with really talented people and affiliating with really talented people like the two of you and many others. But I think the theme for John Barnard is just a regular guy. See, it's like the most extraordinary people. Always say that. Just say that. Maybe that's a sign. Because yeah. Dr. DiLorenzo, what, what was his? his was, He's I'm just a regular guy. guy. Average, average guy. guy that likes yeah. to work hard. Uh, right. I, that's I, awesome. I like that. I don't I like remember that. that but no, uh, Oh, we may have cut it. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was in there. It was in there. No, but that's great. I feel like it does kind of capture your essence. You know, it can be a uh, it can be a secret sauce to success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, honestly. Yeah, not thinking of yourself too highly. Another question that's kind of more personal. Um, <laughs> tell us about a book, podcast, movie, TV show that you've been watching or listening to that you'd recommend. I read a book about eighteen months ago called "How to Do Nothing" hmm. by an artist named Jenny O'Dell. She's a Stanford faculty member, and she wrote a book on how to do nothing. 
There's a subtitle. The subtitle is How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. So it says a lot about the fact that social media and media and forces in our society today, everybody is striving to capture your attention, and it's exhausting. And it is um, sinister in some way. Mm -hmm. And uh, she wrote this beautiful book, it's very academic. It's a tough. It's honestly a tough read, uh, but it's. I think there's such important um, concepts there, and mm-hmm. how you live in 2021 and and beyond in a economy and a culture that really just strives for your attention co- constantly. I really enjoyed it so much. So, and I thought there was such deep meaning there that I went back. And tried to read it a second time this summer. I did a deeper dive and tried to be more deliberate about it, and and um, I didn't quite make it through on the second <laughs> on the second t- time. But uh, I think there's something important there. Yeah. Ooh, that would be a hard one for me. Doing do, nothing. Yeah, it's like the simplest thing, Ooh. but the hardest thing. It's true. Yeah. I mean, even when I'm watching TV or something, like I'm, I'm always fidgeting or doing something. That's how I end up or knitting multitasking. that hat. <laughs> I mean, I, I watch television with my laptop or my iPad in yeah. my, yeah. my lap. Multitasking in oh, my Oh, let me show you what I did this week while <laughs> I was supposedly doing nothing. This is for... <laughs> oh, for you, crush, you crocheted a little cap for Nietzsche's yeah. baby. Is that a Buckeye It's theme? a Buckeye-themed hat. But that's at least it's productive, you know. I know. Well, it's, that's what I mean. Doing nothing is not easy for me. Yeah, it's better than like two hours of just endlessly scrolling through social media posts. But that's true. Oh man. Well, nowadays I think you have to try to do nothing. I mean, there's yeah. an effort to do nothing, and and she in the book she uh, gets into how you might cultivate a style to do nothing, and I, like I it. think it's important. Mm-hmm. I, I I cautiously recommend the book. Hmm. Okay. I like it. I like it. Dr. Barnard, we're having this conversation today, a few months before you plan to retire, over 35 years after you finished your GI fellowship at Vanderbilt in 1986. And your passion for research, particularly in PhDI, has been really constant throughout your career. Can you tell us how this passion developed and how it has guided your career from a young investigator to now head of one of the largest pediatric research institutes. Well, uh, thanks for the question. <laughs> it's uh, probably not the most uh, stimulating answer that I'm going to have for that. It sort of a- occurred very organically. But in my early days of training as a fellow at Vanderbilt, uh, what was called then Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, Research was an expectation, and my love of science and biology that I confessed earlier sort of really caught hold in those years. And I'm telling you guys, this was an era where we knew so little about pediatric gastroenterology. There were far more questions than answers on on almost every topic, and so it was so fascinating to to think about... uh, the answers to these questions and how they might be addressed experimentally. And I was in a milieu that supported that sort of inquiry, and I just found it exceedingly uh, exciting. Interesting story. I don't think I've ever told anyone this. When I was a second-year medical student, we did uh, some physiology experiments in the lab at my medical school, and I did my experiment. My experiment was related to nutrient and electrolyte transport and i hated it <laughs> uh, and i thought gastroenterology was like the my least favorite oh, uh, wow. discipline mm-hmm. but during residency and seeing babies with neonatal necrotizing enterocolitis and some of the other really challenging gi problems began to pique my uh, interest and in that plus having a great mentor in dr Fayez gashan who's chair of the department at the university of arizona in tucson mm-hmm. to this very day really just got me excited about it. And it's such a wonderful thing to immerse yourself in a field uh, where there are more questions than answers. Yeah. All these years later, there's still so many questions. It's like, you'll never, if that curiosity exists, it'll 
push you for the entirety of your career. Sure. Uh, there are more questions now than, right. than ever before. The, the cool thing is we have tools to begin to address the questions. And um, that's an exciting part about research and academia in 2021 is that, um, you know, we can now address these questions. And pediatric mm-hmm. gastroenterologists are doing that uh, nationally and internationally. And it's really uh, cool to see. The questions that we could ask back in those days were, I would say, at best, only incremental to science. Now we can actually ask exceedingly important questions with major implications associated with it. And to kind of follow up on that, I mean, it seems that you know medical research more broadly, and including in pediatric GI, kind of flows in seasons, I guess, where topics or techniques become more hot and interesting, and then they kind of fade away as something new comes along. So as someone who's followed the evolution of pediatric GI research closely over the past several decades now, including in your uh, basic science year in review talks that you used to give at NASPGIN every year, what do you feel like has, have been the main topics or themes that have shaped pediatric GI research over the course of your career? Well, there, there are a couple of like tectonic mm-hmm. um, occurrences in my c- career, and they, they keep happening, by the way. So the first one was the discovery of of Helicobacter as a cause of ulcer yeah. disease, which when I was an early in my training, we didn't know that. Wow! So the field became so hot. That field became so hot, and you know, so many posters at Digestive Diseases Week and NAS began wow. related to Helicobacter, and then there was my God, there was even a journal entitled Helico. <laughs> Factor, so it revolutionized the field in the mid in the mid eighties, and um, of course we still have abstracts on Helicobacter, but you know it's I don't want to say it's passe that right. the, the bacterium is still there and its right. pathology still exists, but our attention has moved elsewhere in in uh, in, in many ways, and I don't we've not solved the problem, right. but it's still. There, the, the fascinating epidemiology is still there. The antibiotic resistance is a is a major issue now, and none of us really do a great job of culturing for it. So there's still so many important questions about Helicobacter. And then later came, in I think 1989, the discovery of hepatitis C virus mm. that rocked the, the 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 world of adult GI and pediatric uh, GI uh, also. Uh, Soon thereafter, the evolution of our thinking about eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, which I think Glenn Feruda is right. It's one area of, of uh, gastroenterology where pediatricians led the way mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and led the way uh, really well. And that was a cool sort of shift in things also. And then more globally, the impact of genomics on pediatric gastroenterology and Pediatrics in general, all of, all of medicine has been right. really just absolutely extraordinary, and we're still only uh, just out of the starting gates on that. So there's so much more potential in the future, too. So lots of tectonic, lots of tectonic changes, trends that come and mm-hmm. go, uh, some that fizzle. Uh, I remember in, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, mycobacterial considerations and inflammatory bowel disease were so prominent. Interesting. So lots of posters at, at DDW on, uh-huh. on atypical mycobacteria's cause of IBD and Crohn's disease. That kind of fizzled. Wow, that's crazy. That is cool. And so what do you think are the current hot topics? And then what do you predict may be coming in the future? I mean, no pressure, but... Yeah. You never know the, the future when you're standing in the, yeah. in the, in the present. And I have to uh, caveat to all of my conversation today and observations is is very much molded by what we do here at Nationwide Mm -hmm. Children's. We have our areas of focus and areas of expertise, and these are areas that I know the most uh, about. And I don't want to give short shrift to many of the other exciting advances that are happening nationally that maybe we don't do well here. But uh, certainly the things I'll mention are are, uh, important nationally and and internationally, I, gene therapy is a huge area of biomedicine today, and uh, it, the field is is about thirty years old. But the past three to five years, it's just com- completely um, uh, accelerated and uh, in ways that have been really, really exciting. 
And it's an area of medicine where those of us who are interested in single gene disorders, single gene liver diseases, the occasional single gene uh, uh, hollow viscous or, or pancreas uh, diseases, the reality is that with gene therapy or gene editing approaches in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they're going to change the way we treat certain diseases. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just exceedingly exciting. And it's exciting also because industry is really interested in it uh, uh, right now. And there are estimated about 8,000 single gene disorders. Many hundreds of them are GI disorders. And uh, our colleagues nationally need to be part of the of that story. Right. So that that is a consequence of of um, the precursors of genomics informing how we do gene therapy. I think genomics is another really hot area coming down the, uh, well, we're already out of the starting gate, as I right. mentioned, but it's going to ex- continue to I- accelerate for us. Uh, so I was just looking at a paper in the past few days that, uh, that from uh, Emory Subra Kugathasan has done a, a, a very, very large study, whole genome sequencing and, children, African-American children with IBD. Hmm. And the learnings there are spectacular. And the notion five or 10 years ago that you could do this would have been completely out of the question. Uh, So um, we're going to learn so much more in in the years ahead. But I think cost has really played a role in that. I know that's not something that we pre asked you, but it used to be so expensive to do some of these testings. And now it's much more attainable. Well, the Human Genome Project was $3 billion, and it was a very rudimentary Mm -hmm. result compared to what we can do now for, you know, $1,000 to $5,000 a whole exome, and Human Genome Project took more than a decade, and now we can do it literally. Many of us are now doing rapid genomes in 24, 48 hours turnaround for clinical purposes. Mm -hmm. Wow. And again, we're just starting. So Mm -hmm. it's going to get better and faster. And someday we're all going to have our genome. I don't think it's going to be that far in the future. We're all going to have our genome in the electronic health record. You're going to open up Epic and there'll be, you know, the uh, 535th tab that you have available (laughs) to click on will be, uh, you know, the the, uh, newborn screening genome and its interpretation. And that's going to be so exciting. Mm -hmm. It's going to be complex. And extraordinary research opportunities, but uh, but it's going to happen for yeah, sure, and, yeah. and not in my lifetime, not in my professional well, lifetime, <laughs> but in your professional lifetime, it will happen. Yeah. I hope whoever does the data visualization on that does an excellent job to make it very easy to read. <laughs> right, that's a great point. That's yeah, a great it's point. Like so Jen. much information, yeah. and yeah, and I feel like no matter what your specific interest is within pediatric GI, like these advances will, you know, make a huge impact in your field like in motility, for example, you know, so it's like our responsibility, I guess, to try to apply that to our patient population and our interest group. Absolutely. Hollow viscous diseases, Mm -hmm. pancreatic diseases, liver diseases, nutritional approaches. I mean, every possible area you can think about will be shaped by probably not in in most instances, not defined by, but shaped Mm -hmm. by uh, 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 genomic, our genomic uh, makeup. Yeah. You know, so switching gears a little bit from the research itself to the researcher, we also wanted to ask a little bit about how research careers have changed over the course of your career as well. So I feel like there's oftentimes this concern about waning interest from uh, medical trainees in, um, in research and in, in specifically establishing like a research career. So is that true? And do we have any data on how interest in a research-based physician scientist career has changed over time? Uh, There's some data, but let me say that for all of my career, Mm -hmm. 40 years now, uh, 41, if you go back all the way to my residency training, this has been a topic of concern. Ah, Interesting. The NIH director, Dr. Uh, Wingarten, I think it was in 1980, published a paper that that had something, a title akin to Physician scientist is a vanishing species. <laughs> uh, so people have been worried about it for a long time, and I think it's not materialized to a catastrophic extent. But mm-hmm. uh, physician scientist careers are um, 
more challenging now than they've ever been uh, before. And there are fewer physician scientists if measured by NIH grants awarded to M- those with MD degree. Mm-hmm. It's decreasing, but not catastrophically so. Um, MD, PhD is a career that is, um, I think, proving to be modestly more effective in, in, um, the, in the, the science and competing for grants at the NIH level than physician scientist career. But there's certainly nothing that says that physician scientists can't because they do every day compete for for hundreds and hundreds of NIH grants every year and so it's still there i don't think it's um, it's something we're all concerned about but i think we can manage it over time there's so much more that quote competes close quotes with our uh, with research careers now quality and safety is a huge thing and uh, that was not a, a career option Five, 10, 15 years ago. Right. And um, the clinical research was not even a thing uh, 10, 20 years ago. It was a thing, but there were isolated observations made by people doing case series in their own institutions, for example. And I was thinking about this recently. Uh, In 2000, uh, Dr. Jim Markowitz published his randomized uh, trial of 6-mercaptopurine in IBD. And that was a huge breakthrough because many of us said, this is the first multi-institutional randomized clinical trial in a pediatric GI disorder ever conducted. We bragged about it. We were proud of it. Well, nowadays, that study, um, you know, it has a had its challenges Mm -hmm. and sometimes that study is maligned which is not fair it's been 21 years now and one of the huge advances in our field i'm getting around to answering your your question about how training is uh, and research careers has evolved peter but um, nowadays um, institutional clinical trials for ibd are commonplace Mm -hmm. and we're getting better they're much more complex and sophisticated, which leads me to say that I think it's a good strategy for those interested in academic careers and research careers, uh, for many of those interested in it, to pursue master's degrees in uh, master's of public health or master's in clinical research or master's Mm -hmm. in clinical sciences, whatever your institution might have. I think it's a good strategy to pursue. If you would have asked me, uh, Ten years ago, I would have said, "Don't bother." Mm-hmm. It's uh, I think you can get your training with mentoring outside the degree, but now I don't think that's the case. Clinical trial design is complex, sophisticated, exciting. Lots of opportunities there, and bio same thing with biostatistics and unique statistical approaches. Jen, I like the career path that you have taken with uh, with uh, training in clinical informatics. Another option nowadays that didn't exist ten years or or so ago. And so I think we're going to see more and more pediatric gastroenterologists with dual training, dual careers, master's degrees, other uh, accredited subspecialty certifications that um, will begin to, to um, make our discipline even richer in expertise and, and um, depth of uh, expertise in the years ahead. Yeah, so that's a good point. So it's not necessarily that people are no longer interested in research. It's uh there are now so many other options that weren't there before. It's not sure. just research or clinical. And I think that, Div- that makes sense. Diversification. Yeah. And, and Alan Leitner did a really terrific mm-hmm. um, Bowel Sounds episode on the, the careers in medical education, which right. also, mm-hmm. weren't, also weren't a thing uh, a, a few years ago. So. Yeah. So maybe it's not. It's interesting that it's like this has been a concern for forever you know mm-hmm. and maybe it's not a bad thing even if the numbers are coming down a little bit maybe it just means that people are kind of changing and how they when what pediatric gi means yeah. um to them well and you talked a lot about some of the other options for careers but for someone who really does want that physician scientist career what are some of the challenges that you previously mentioned that exist now that maybe didn't exist back then it's the complexity of mm-hmm. the, the, the the field medical knowledge is You've, you've read the stories about how the logarithmically it's in, increasing 
and Jen, your field of informatics is is contributing to that <laughs> that explosion of availability of data and, and information. So it's just it's just complex, and I and those who wish to pursue it successfully need to immerse themselves in ways that we haven't done historically. Again, maybe by master's degrees uh, and uh, and other uh, approaches, PMD, PhD degrees, mm-hmm. deeply immersing yourself in a in a focused topic is um, really an important part of the formula for success nowadays, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the explosion of data. Are there other advantages that may exist to taking that physician scientist career path now? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the tools available to us mm-hmm. have never been more formidable. And you think about the tools of, of uh, genomics and microbiome science and and big data approaches that are available Mm -hmm. these national databases that come from registries and the electronic health record and then you begin to think about combining those in creative ways to ask important questions for our discipline oh my gosh it's so exciting but the expertise that it requires and i might say the multidisciplinarity that's required is um is the huge a huge challenge. It's not. It's not easy to do, and no one person can be. Let's say you were going to ask a, a extremely important question in the field of IBD that related to our bacterial ecosystems and the microbiome and its interface with g- genomics, and you wanted to do that on a national scale, which is probably what it would require. Well, no one person is going to know all the microbiome science, all the the human genomics, and all of the big data. Uh, challenges that exist with that so assembling a research team to do that mm-hmm. that's no small task not something a fellow can easily easily do but that's the opportunity that lies before us we need to develop careers that that um, take us in that direction i love the multidisciplinary approach I think working with people in, who have expertise in other areas it's just it can open your eyes to things you never even knew existed of course yeah mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, there's a there's a science behind multidisciplinarity, for example. So if you look at the highest profile publications, they tend to have authorship from multiple countries. It's a big big data approaches to figure this out. You go to PubMed and then you just look at um, the, hmm. the author affiliations. Science papers, cell papers, nature papers are much more likely to have uh, multi uh, country authorship than uh, papers in lower tier journals and yeah. one other interesting thing maybe we'll get to diversity later but there are techniques to look at uh, one's uh, ethnic background by their name and um, papers that have uh, multi-ethnic backgrounds are more likely to be in uh, higher tier journals also wow. so that goes into the diversity advantage of of um, affiliating with others and, and pe- people that uh, may have trained where you didn't uh, right. trained outside the United States or, or have a viewpoint that's different from uh, your own. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. So I guess, you know, obviously over the course of your career, you know, you started as a investigator. Now you are uh, a leader of our department, of the Research Institute. What do you think the role should be for institutions and organizations in supporting physician scientists? And how can leaders make sure that physician scientists are supported regardless of gender and race? Well, interesting question, particularly for the field of, of pediatrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are now in the range of um, 80, uh, 70 to 80% women in pediatric residencies, some variation there. But we are of a woman-predominant uh, field. Mm-hmm. And if we're not invested in the success of women in the field of pediatrics and the field of pediatric gastroenterology, then we can't be interested in the success of our field because women are going to be such a critical part of it. So we have to have strategies to support women scientists and women clinical innovators and, and uh, women medical educators and all the rest of it. So we have to be interested in strategies and approaches to do that. Uh, um, there are societal forces that pull us back from that, that we have to battle continuously, daycare issues, childcare issues, um, all of those things are 
things that we have to think about holistically as institutions to support the women's uh, careers and, and advancement of women in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Right now, in this point in history, it's important for us to still count. So my, and what I mean by that is we have to constantly be aware of what we're doing with women and medicine and women in science. How many startup packages have we given to men and women over the past certain number of years? How big were those startup packages for men versus women? Uh, how many women do we have in leadership positions in our d- divisions? And, and how many women department chairs? We have to relentlessly count and report. If we don't, we're not going to be a- aware of it because there's a implicit um, bias against which can creep into these sorts of considerations, determ- determinations in, in ways that are harmful to the advancement of women and underrepresented minorities go for all of these comments as as well. So we're still at a point where we really have to count and pay attention to these kinds of things. Yeah. Like the last few NASPGAN council and chair meetings, um, Dr. Tomer and Sangavi will go through all the numbers for committee chairs, editors, you know, you know, women, men, minority. So I feel like, right. It's like you're inherent bias that your unconscious bias can creep in if you're not actively thinking about it you have to do it i'll tell you a quick anecdote so we have a named lectureship here at nationwide children's it's an annual lectureship very high profile we invite nobel laureates to 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 speak and um, it's been a successful program and uh, i think the institution really enjoys it and we decided a few years ago to put photographs of all the speakers uh, in a hallway that connects one of our research buildings to another research mm-hmm. building. And so we had them framed. We put them up, and it's only after we put them up and <laughs> oh, walk no. past them every day. Holy mackerel. <laughs> Eight out of nine invited speakers had been men. Yeah. Well, the committee that was responsible for the decisions had men on it and it had women on it, equal numbers. Right. But somehow, we so... I requested that the um, framed photographs be taken down <laughs> and that the committee had to invite uh, consecutively women's speakers in the years ahead. So that's, to me, it's just a really interesting example of how good people, well-intentioned, can make harmful dis- decisions by virtue of implicit bias or, or whatever you want to call it. So right, we, we, right. we changed the committee charge and um, they had to come up with you know two dozen potential women scientists to serve as the next uh, speaker and that can certainly happen in NASPGAN committees mm-hmm. it can happen in so many other uh, contexts i mean we think about that too aren't choosing our guests because i think you have to peter mm-hmm. yeah well so. especially because you know when we first started the podcast we were we were wanting to invite kind of the historical leaders of the field, like as many pres- past presidents right, right. and what have you, and there weren't as many women options. Right. Um, yeah, we okay. can. Stuff. I have some great suggestions for Please you. Please do. Uh, we Send can them sidebar away. some uh, <laughs> uh, sometime. The the hard work and effort that you're putting in for for female scientists, I, I really appreciate all of that, and I think the dream conversations we've been having have been really helpful and eye opening as well. Um, can you explain a little bit what that is and, and why we're doing that? So for the listeners, uh, DREAM stands for Diversity, Racism, Equity, and Academic Medicine. It, uh, it is a program that we've developed here at Nationwide Children's that is a, uh, a structured around a panel discussion of a certain constituency. Uh, the first one that we had in June of 2020 was uh, six African-American colleagues speaking openly and candidly in a gently moderated discussion about um, what it's like to be an African-American or, uh, or a black faculty member in the, in, in, uh, the modern era. And uh, these conversations were pretty raw, extremely authentic and genuine and um, the first one I thought was just earth-shakingly mm-hmm. successful and informative. And so at Nationwide Children's, we've done now eight dream conversations with uh, Asian colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, you participated in. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, multiple other constituencies, LGBTQ+, 
plus um, international graduates, so many others. And to hear physician colleagues, our best friends and right. colleagues and yeah. people that we admire and respect the challenges that they uh, live as um, unique contributors uh, to our ecosystem, but from a background that's not uh, white and, and male, um, to hear our dear colleagues express their lived experiences is so deeply meaningful to our faculty. And uh, I think it's been extremely impactful. I get so, such good feedback for it and personally for me, but I think for many, many others on our, our faculty, it's meant so much to, to hear what our cherished colleagues uh, uniquely experience. And, uh, it's better than reciting PowerPoint slides, <laughs> statistics on PowerPoint <laughs> slides and you know, formal lectures, but just the genuine nature of it, I think, has been really uh, uh, impactful. And those conversations, I think, on a societal level are so important for us. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, there are people that you've known for a decade, but they're like bearing their soul in a way that you've never, you know, sure. you would have never been able to talk to them about those topics, you know, in your daily life. Um, it's, oh, I, I think it's super powerful and important for us, for people to understand those perspectives. Well, and I wanted to bring it up specifically because I hope other organizations, if they haven't considered doing anything like that may, may start because yeah. I really find them, they're very moving. Yeah. Um, so let's move a little bit to the GI fellow. So how does the future look for our fellows that may be interested in a physician scientist career and what do you feel are the keys to success for our GI fellows who are wanting a career in research in 2021? So this is a conversation that I have with a lot of people also. And that I think fellows, fellowship is a time when you have to do so many things. You have mm -hmm. clinical responsibilities. You have research responsibilities. You have uh, mandates to participate in quality and safety initiatives and so many other things. Somehow, amongst all of those priorities, you still need to focus and Focus your energy on whatever your passion is going to be. Mm -hmm. You asked me the question about research, so you have to focus on research if that if you think that is your passion. And uh, I think that's the biggest Achilles' heels of uh, GI fellows and physician trainees in general is you, you. We love what we do, and we enjoy being uh, uh, experts in so many different areas, and that's. A little bit of a challenge if you don't focus. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, for for every thousand times I've heard that so and so is not focused enough. I've only heard once. You know, so and so is just too focused, <laughs> and nobody says someone is too focused. Right, right. Just uh, so in our in our field, I urge those who are interested in pursuit, whatever your pursuit might be, is to really focus on it and don't get too distracted by other exciting opportunities that are available to uh, all of us. Having said that, I'm reminded, you know, our division chief, Carlo De Lorenzo says, just say yes, <laughs> don't just say no. And uh, so institutional citizenship is important. But focus is important and uh, important too. And Jen, just to get back to your question and to repeat it, I do think now if you if one is really interested in a research career, I think that uh, that has translational dimensions to it or clinical investigative dimensions to it. Really think about doing a master's degree. I I just think it gives you an advantage and it also forces you to focus because mm -hmm. there's coursework and tests and. Uh, causes you to have to focus to succeed in, in doing that. So I did a master's in, uh, in, in like medical science when I was a fellow. And I feel like one of the key things that institution did was they paid for my tuition. You know, that would not be feasible for me if it didn't have the support right. of the, of the institution. So, you know, I feel like that's probably one of the big ways that institutions could help too, mm -hmm. especially since it's becoming more and more of like a, almost like a requirement maybe in some ways to have a successful research career it's not a requirement but yeah. i think it's extremely helpful mm -hmm. uh, i don't want to say that you can't succeed without doing yeah, it but sure. i think it does give you a, a leg up and most major academic centers now do provide uh, 
scholarships, if you will, or tuition assistance for taking, um, uh, for enrolling in master's programs. You know, interestingly, we have, we don't do that at the faculty level at mm-hmm. Nationwide Children's yeah. because at that, you know, at that point you're differentiated and far enough right. along the, uh, the, the curve and we need our faculty to focus on other things. So, so fellowship is the time to do it. And I, uh, uh, you know, again, encourage it as a serious consideration. Talk to your mentors, talk to your advisors. Is it the right for you? Is it right for the type of research that you're particularly interested in? It's an important conversation and consideration to have really in the first year of fellowship, mm-hmm. early in the first year of fellowship. So as we approach the end of this uh, interview, so looking back on your career this far, especially since we're just a few months away from uh, your retirement, what has been the most valuable advice you've received and what advice do you have for our listeners? Uh, so this goes back to the beginning also as uh, you know, I'm just a normal guy and um, a regular guy. And my father, who, who passed away many, many years ago, was a, uh, a high school educated person, never went to college, but he gave me the most useful advice that I have, uh, and I think about it virtually every day still, and that is uh, all people put on their pants the same way. That gets a little bit back to the equity thing, a little bit back to leadership styles, but in in approaching my work, it's it's just important to know that all people put on their pants the same way, and that's been a a theme sort of driven my Thinking as a clinician, as a a leader, just has been a deeply meaningful ad, ad, advice for for me. Yeah, yeah, like finding the common ground instead of focusing sure. on the differences. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, I don't think I've heard that before, but I really like it. Yeah. If, if you'll Google, if you Google it, you'll see a lot of uh, commentary on on this as as a g- g- good advice, and I'm. I'm sure my father didn't get it from. I'm very sure my father didn't get it from Google. So he just, he just, <laughs> he just lived it that, just lived it that way. But right. um, I think it's it's good advice as we take care of our patients, as we mm-hmm. deal with our colleagues, day in and day out. And um, I think it's terrific tenant to live by. Yeah. So, Doctor probably, probably not what you expected me to say. No, but no, great. but I kind of like. I do like that. Yeah, I think it's always. It's always nice to hear advice that's not like follow your passion or, I mean, these are, those are great too, but I think it's helpful to hear something a little bit different and something that I think applies not just for patient care, but also in leadership dealing with maybe challenging or challenges or challenges between people and managing people. So I think that's, no, I think that's great. So, Dr. Barnard, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. And um, as we're closing, do you have any final words for our listeners? Uh, I do. Uh, my final word is engage with NASPGAN. Yeah. And uh, engage with the NASPGAN Foundation. Donate to the NAS- NASPGAN Foundation. In pediatric gastroenterology, we have something very, very special. And, and now that I've been department chair for a number of years, I've been able to have a window into what other subspecialties in our field of pediatrics do and the culture that exists there. And there are very strong subspecialty cultures across the many, many uh, board-certifiable accredited subspecialties in PED. So this is not a knock against anybody. However, we've got something special in pediatric gastroenterology and uh, and uh, Take advantage of, the, of that, and it's just it's ice cream on the cake. It's it's icing on the cake, <laughs> or ice cream, or ice cream, ice cream. Or cake and ice cream. <laughs> it's all of that. And so, uh, engaging with Naspagan has been one of the richest parts of my uh, professional uh, c- career. Has been so in- enjoyable. It's been an honor to participate in your podcast today and, and think some thinking that some of my dear friends and Naspagan might be listening to me is uh is an honor in and of itself yeah no that's that's great i mean obviously thank you so much for joining us i mean it's been a pleasure it's something that we've wanted for a long time i feel like uh you know listening to someone who's been president of our our, our beloved organization and headed divisions and research institutes it's just 
it's cool to hear kind of what you felt like was what maybe led to some of your success and maybe things that we can think about as we think about our own careers. Well, I'm going to take some of your advice very personally right now, because definitely focusing is something that I want to work on. (laughs) And so, so I, 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 I'm so grateful to hear that in this, in this context, because it's easier said than done. You know, some of our guests say, say yes. And some of our guests say, say (laughs) Say no. no. (laughs) I just don't know. Um, and so I think it is a challenging balance, but ultimately that focus is going to be really important. It is a, it is a challenge and there are many, many things that don't want you to focus, right. uh, but you need to battle it and, 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 uh, and focus in many ways. Yeah. Kind of gets back to you. Uh, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It gets back to your book. Like sort of does. Full circle. We've connected <laughs> all of, uh, uh, we've connected all your questions, your questions back to some sort of. Uh, in some sort of central matrix here. Right. So of uh, doing words, nothing. Just do nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but ser- on a serious note, yeah, thank you again so much for joining us. And uh, I'm sure that the community is really going to benefit from hearing yeah. some of the words of wisdom you, has, uh, you had for us today. It's been my honor. Thanks for the privilege. Well, I would like to thank Dr. Barnard again for sitting down with us. Um, and, and especially in his busy schedule he, as he's preparing everything before his retirement. Um, so yeah, once again, thank you. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and you want to support us in the podcast, it would really help us out if you do one or all of the three things. Tell someone about the podcast, leave a review on Apple, Apple Podcasts for us to read, and on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there at www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussions, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye.